Well, we just sang my whole message, so I can sit down now. No. <laughs> so, uh, oh. We good? We were working earlier. There we go. Woohoo! All right. I always complicate things around here, so. So the question, well, two questions that you see up there this morning are two questions that I'm hoping this morning that we'll be able to dive into and hopefully answer um, this morning. Why are people looking up Isaiah 40, 31? Well, as, as we've been uh, diving in all summer, we've been looking at pop verses. We've been looking at the popular verses that people search, the top 25 um, and, and this is one of them. And I, for me, the question that goes along with that is, what answer are the people looking for? If people are searching it so much, what answer are they looking for when they're looking up Isaiah forty thirty one? This is my friend David Kelly. Uh, David and I met back in 96. I moved down to St. John, New Brunswick with Esther to take on the job uh, with Calgary's farm team to be the trainer with their farm team in St. John, New Brunswick. And David at the time uh, had been a stick boy for a couple years there with the Flames. And uh, he continued on after he graduated high school for my first couple years in St. John. And David and I had stayed friends ever since. And um, David is currently the head equipment manager for the St. John Sea Dogs, which is like the Pure Bowl Peets, but in the, uh, in the Quebec Major Junior League. David is uh, early 30s, mid-30s now. Uh, I believe it was three years ago, David was uh, diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And as you can see from the one picture, the big scar around his neck, um, he... Uh, He's been opened up probably about uh, three or four times uh, for different surgeries on his thyroid. And it seemed like treatment was, was getting somewhere. Uh, and he was feeling good and back to health. And, but as they do uh, regular checkups, um, I think it was just a little, over a little year ago, they discovered that uh, cancer had moved into David's lungs. And... Back in November, things turned real bad for David. His health went way down, and we, uh, to the point where the doctors, uh, you know, had that meeting with him and said, "You need to get things in order because we're not sure. We're just not sure how much longer you have." Now, fortunately for David, they tried chemo again, and it shrunk a bunch of the tumors. Didn't eliminate it. And, uh, and David's still fighting. He's still fighting uh, cancer. But the question is, is where is his hope? Well, his hope, you know, 
His truly his hope, his hope is in the next six months or the next nine months or the next 12 months. David is hoping to live, to continue to fight for six more months because maybe in six months, he says, the doctors will have another treatment for me. Maybe the cancer research people will have a breakthrough. And if I can live six more months, then maybe in the next six months or the next nine months, maybe something else breaks through. Something that will keep me going for another six months. Or, I mean, ultimately, it would be great if he could be cured. But David's hope is in medical research. As I said off the start, we're looking at Isaiah 40, 31. And this is how it reads in the, uh, <coughs> sorry, um, in the NIV. We read all those verses leading up to, and this is how chapter 40 concludes. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. One of the things I like about, uh, about the digital Bible is you can look up all ki- types of uh, versions. There's the King James, there's the New King James, there's NIV, there's uh, American Standard, there's, all ki- there's the message. There's all kinds of different versions you can look up really quickly. As much as I love the feel of a paper Bible in my hands, boy, it's handy to have all those versions just at a click of a button. And what I want to... When I did some searching on this verse, I really liked, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with the Amplified Bible, but it basically does exactly what the word Amplify means. It just, it's taken the Bible, it's taken the verses and expanded it. And I think this is really helpful to read it in this way also as we look to unpack this verse. But those who wait for the Lord, who expect, look for, and hope in him, will gain new strength and renew their power. They will lift up their wings and rise up close to God like eagles rising towards the sun. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not grow tired. This is some good positive words there. I, no wonder thousands and thousands of people are, are researching this, this verse, right? So let's try and unpack it a little bit. Let's see why Isaiah wrote these words so many uh, years ago. So just Quickly, let's bear with me. If you're not much of a history person, we'll just try and touch on a little bit of history. So the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah was a prophet. And as far as the books of the Bible go, you've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Well, 66 verses get you the title of a major prophet, right? So Isaiah is one of the major prophets. Lots of words in those 66 verses. He was an Old Testament uh, prophet. And... The name Isaiah means the salvation of the Lord. It's a pretty cool meaning for for your name. Overall, the common theme is that there's a message of needed repentance and salvation. So through the whole book, that was uh, Isaiah's message as he wrote this book. The message as a whole in his book is there will be a purging of the nation the nation Israel. So he's writing it to the nation of Israel, that there will be a purging. And why? Because God is holy. And the Israelites weren't acting very holy. 
the pagan nations, so the, every other nation except for Israel, will, is who God's going to use to chasten Israel for their, for their sins, to bring that punishment. But, <clears throat> but ultimately, the Messiah will come and provide salvation for them all. So the book of Isaiah, we almost take, a, take an axe to it and chop it. There's such a, a, a strong division here. All right? So chapters 1 through 39, very, very much you read over and over the words of judgment on the nation of Israel. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Rocky, all right, Rocky trains in a big butcher shop, and he pounds on that side of beef. I mean, this is how Israel felt when hearing these words of Israel. They felt like they were in the ring with Rocky, and they had no way to defend themselves, and they were a beaten-up chunk of meat. I mean, there's a lot of negative words here about the punishment. And so they're, you know, they're hearing these words, and they've been hit with so many you know, left jabs. They're begging for a right hook just to change things up. And it's interesting because all of a sudden, Boom, in chapter 40, they get that change. Chapters 40 through 66 are changed to words of hope, of salvation and restoration for Jerusalem, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. So a book with two distinct parts to it, but an overall strong message to the Israels, Israelites. Yeah, slowly dialing in here. Now we're in chapter 40. So chapter 40 is that switch point. All right? Where it goes from the punishment to the encouragement. Even so much that there's a whole new writing style that starts. And that's created all kinds of debate in, you know, amongst the theologians theologians, you know, um, about did somebody else write it and all that. And we're not going to dive into that because that's kind of, that's, that's irrelevant for us. But it's such a change that, to me, really, the, the change in writing style just emphasizes that much more what God is trying to say through Isaiah. And it's neat because the chapter has been, chapter 40 is titled, Comfort for God's People. It's a big switch. It's a big change. So why not change the writing style? Isaiah, in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, read is this. Comfort, comfort my people. Right, right away, the first two words is, brings about that change. It's not a gradual change. It's boom, right away in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her, hair, her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Relief. I mean, the people listening to this firsthand, I mean, a big sigh, wow, okay. What next, Isaiah? They're hanging on these words, right? Because now there's a change. And we've read, I don't want to work through, you know, verses 6 through 28. We've already just read those. But I do want to highlight a few phrases. If you have your, your Bible uh, open, you can 
kind of pick them out as we go, but I've highlighted uh, here some of the great phrases in those 22 verses. It, and these describe the greatness of the Lord God. So Isaiah starts by saying, you're going to feel comforted. And then he gets into telling them, reminding them who God is, what a great God they serve. Just picture this. The breath of the Lord blows on them. The sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Verses 12, 13, and 14. If you look at those verses, they all start with who has. And it's, uh, it's descriptions of comparison. It talks about the greatness of God, right? The dust of this earth. Who's measured it? Well, only God has because he made the earth. The amount of water, I mean, we could... Google it up, and I could tell you, you know, how many gallons of water there are in the cloud, and how many are in this ocean, and how much is collectively. But only, it's only human estimations, right? I mean, only God, the creator of it all, really knows how much. And he, he, he can take all the water of this earth in, in, in the palm of his hand, is how it's written, how it's described, to emphasize that amazing greatness of our creator, of their creator. Isaiah writes, to whom then will you compare God? It says he reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. I mean, all the time there's rulers rising up and there's rulers falling. As quick as they come, that quickly they go. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. I mean, it was done all the time back then. We still do it today, you know, maybe in different ways, but people want a physical God. They make sculptures. They make stuff out of wood, out of stone, out of cement. They make other gods that they can look at, but then they turn around and worship what they made, not worship who made them says the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. I was reading and studying these words. I found them overwhelming. But you know what? The Israelites needed it, and sometimes we need to be slapped in the face with the greatness of God. We get caught up in our everyday lives, Maybe not physically, but kind of mentally and attitude-wise, we minimize God the way we treat him with the respect that we give him as we go through a day, a week. Do we really, day in and day out, give God the respect, that understand that greatness, the creator of us, the creator of the heavens, the earth, I mean, you want to be blown away? Lay down on a, uh, or sit out in an open field and look up in the sky some starry night 
and look at the stars. Look at the vastness of the heavens above us. If what, if, if what surrounds you here on earth doesn't amaze you enough, look up. And that's why Isaiah wrote chapter 40. We need Isaiah 40. We need to be reminded because way too often our conception day in and day out is beneath God. It doesn't show him the respect due him. And maybe sometimes we get so far away we actually need to be knocked to our knees, just taken right out. He is the creator and the controller of all heaven and earth. Amazing greatness. And, and so that was up to verse 28. In 29, it changes a little bit after he talks about all the greatness of God. Isaiah writes, He, he being God, gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. The first 39 verses, right? is beating up the Israelites. They're feeling weak. They're feeling, you know, powerless. And so he now addresses that after talking about the greatness of God, saying God will give you strength. He will give you power. And he draws a comparison. He says, even the youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. I mean, I'm deep into my 40s. Boy, I wish I had the strength and energy I had when I was in my late teens and early 20s. I mean, the kids laugh at me because I can't even stay at night, watch, stay awake some nights watching a TV show. I'm asleep on the couch. I wish I had the, uh, the strength and energy. But even young people, you know, they grow weary and tired at times. But this is a three-letter word that is huge. And that's why I put it up there so huge. But even when we are beaten up, when we are feeling weak and powerless, we don't have any more to go on. Isaiah writes, but. But those who wait for the Lord, those who expect, those who look for, those who hope in him, So where's this leading? Well, let's stop for a second and look at what is hope. If it's saying, but those who hope in him, well, what is hope? Well, I mean, hope is a desire for something good in the future, right? We hope for stuff all the time, right? I mean, I've got people in this room that Hope the Pete's have a good season. I have people ask me all the time, how are the Pete's going to do this year? And my answer is, well, I hope we do well. But I can't guarantee it, but I hope it, right? I mean, teenagers, you know, a lot of them are hoping for pizza every other day when they come home, right? Right? You don't get it, but that's a nice hope, right? We use terms like, we wish people good luck. You know, all the best. Hope it works out for you. Right? Good luck, bad luck. But what is hope in the Lord? Or waiting on the Lord? What is that? 
What's the difference between a regular everyday hope and hope in the Lord? Well, it's a confident expectation, and it's a desire for something good in the future. When you hope in the Lord, in the creator, the maker, truly put all your hope in him, there's such a confidence there that as things unfold, as life goes on, even it's not how you want it written, not exactly, but there's a confidence that he is in control. He has a reason. His hand is guiding and directing the events of our life. I mean, there's billions of people on this earth. But he cares about each one of us, and he's, he's in control of the, of the events. He's guiding and direct us. And you can have a confident expectation when your hope is in the Lord. The verse continues on, verse 31 continues on. Those who hope in the Lord, what will happen? Well, the result is they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Those are words of comfort. Those are encouraging words, are they not? Proper godly hope produces a supernatural strength within us. I don't remember many of my dreams, you know, from day to day. But I remember a couple childhood dreams. And the one vivid dream I remember, and it's probably influenced by a young kid, you know, loving superheroes. I remember having this recurring dream that I could fly. I could fly above the earth. What a great dream it was. And it would come every now and again, and I don't know why, but there was, it was a dream of flying. And I wasn't a hummingbird. I wasn't going like this. You know, I wasn't a finch. Anybody ever watch a finch fly? You go up and down. Like, I was just soaring. I was soaring like an eagle. And that's so peaceful. Such a, a sense of, of strength to just soar above everything. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chuck Colson. Um, some would be, some wouldn't be. Um, if you're not familiar with him, you may not fami- be familiar with who President Nixon was or who wa- what Watergate was. But uh, uh, President Nixon of the United States got himself in some deep trouble, did some, some bad things, uh, got nicknamed Watergate, and Chuck Colson uh, was one of his men that were involved. And Chuck Colson, for his involvement in Watergate, in the political uh, sins of, of the U.S., was sent to jail. And while he was in jail, he found true hope. The message of salvation, the message of a great God was shared with him. The message of what Jesus Christ did dying on the cross for our sins was shared for him. And he gave his life to Christ while he was in jail. He did that 180. He changed. And Chuck Colson went on to have a great uh, ministry. Uh, he started up a big prison ministry uh, within the prisons of the U.S., sharing that message of hope and salvation with prisoners throughout the country. 
And this is one of the quotes of Chuck Colson. Maybe it's familiar, maybe you've heard it, if you're a Stephen Chapman music fan. You may have heard it in one of his songs. But Chuck said, where's the hope? The hope that each of us have is not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people, and that's where our hope is in this country, and that's where our hope is in this life. Where's your hope? Our hope is is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. Amazing. So, our big question for the day. Where is your hope? In the big things, in the little things, overall in your life, in your day-to-day moments, where is your hope? We're taught to put our hope in the world. That is the message. Enjoy the world. Enjoy what it has to offer. But look at it. The world offers limited strength. How many times does the things of this world let you down? You lean on it, and that pillar crumbles because it wasn't stable, it wasn't strong. The world is full of wishful thinking. Probably the biggest phrase out there all over is, good luck. Hope it goes well for you. The world provides an uncertain future. This was driven home a little bit with me um, I'm not sure if there's many people here that are a fan of the show, uh, the show MASH, but I was watching MASH this week, and there was an interesting episode of MASH, um, and right at, the, right at the start of the episode, there were soldiers come into the MASH unit, and this one soldier was brought in, and he, he, was, and he had passed away. He was dead. And it's, it's a bit of a different show than usual because what they did is they actually had his soul separate from his body and his soul made these little appearances throughout the, throughout the half-hour show. He would be in the scene and in that scene. And the characters couldn't see him, but he could see them, he could hear them, but nobody else really knew he was there. But it wasn't so much as the show went along, it was how the show ended. Because at the end, he was sitting in the swamp, in one of the tents, and all of a sudden he's like, something's changing, something's different. I feel I have to go somewhere. And he gets up and walks out of the tent, and he walks up to another another person, and he says, where are we going? And they start walking down this dirt road off into the woodlands. And if there was a pause in his response, he said, where are we going? And the other guy took, that, took a look at him and said, I don't know. I don't know where we're going. 
But if your hope is in God, if it's in Jesus, it provides a supernatural power. I mean, we hear testimonies as we share here Sunday mornings of how God's intervened. There's been books written. I'm sure most of you has at some point experienced a supernatural power from God. Strength when you couldn't go on. It, it gives us a confident expectation. When you really trust in God, you can have that expectation that, okay, this isn't working out for me now, but something better is yet to come. Because you've got that knowledge and that understanding and that belief that God is in control of it all. God is the one, through Jesus, who has provided salvation. We are so caught up in our physical world, and rightly so. I mean, we are physical. We are caught up in what we see. But it's the eternal home that we should be more focused on. Going through life, not knowing what comes after this physical life, I can't imagine it. I mean, fortunately for me, I gave my life to Christ when I was a young boy. I can't imagine waking up every morning, stepping out the doors and going, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know what the purpose is. Where am I going after this? I mean, we read stories all the time, like my friend David, who was battling cancer. Some success stories, some failures. And we heard this morning about, you know, we would say in the prime of his life, a young man passing away to an asthma attack. Seems crazy. But that reassurance, that hope, something better. Just quickly and then I'll end. did a study a few years ago with, um, and it was written by John Ortberg and it was uh, a small group study that we did. And John tells a story and I don't know if it's real or, or artificial. It, it doesn't really matter. But he said he walked into a visitation for a funeral for a lady in his church who had passed away. And she was laying there peacefully in her casket, hands like this, with a fork in her hands. And he said to somebody, he goes, why a fork? Sorry. Why a fork in her hands? Because she used to tell a story of the church meals afterwards. You'd have the church meal, people would come around and start clearing tables. But it was the phrase, hold on to your fork. And why hold on to your fork? Because there was something better yet to come. As good as the meal was, almost everybody looks forward to that dessert afterwards. Something better is yet to come. And she wanted that message to everybody to know that she knew that something better was to come. Praise team.